<laughs> Good morning. How you doing today? Hey, Dodgers win. Yeah, woo. It's a miracle. <laughs> uh, hey, so glad to welcome you here today. My name is uh, Mike. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we're going to be continuing our time of teaching uh, this week in a series that we've been in. And so if you're brand new, I want to especially welcome you. Glad you could be here with us. Uh, inside of your program is a white message note sheet that we use every week for our time of teaching. So I encourage you to uh, take that out. That'll help you follow along. And then we're going to go ahead and uh, to jump in. So y'all ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you're doing at our church and the way you're, you're waking us up, calling us on. Like every week is another step in this journey we're taking as a church of learning what it means to be a passionate Christ follower. What does it look like to unleash a movement of passionate Christ followers? And so uh, we know that today's important. It's an important day because it's the next step in our journey. And we don't want to waste one day, one step, Father. We just want to be open to what you would say. And so we ask you to come. Would you, would you teach us? Would you speak to us? When we leave today, will we not just kind of learn more about your word, but we've actually been spoken to, and we know what our next step in the journey is. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Well, our story starts today in a place called the Desert of Sin. It's never a good place to start a story. Uh, the nation of Israel has been, for the last uh, few months, God's been working in amazing ways. First, Moses comes down and says he's, God's seen the nation's plight, and he sent a deliverer. And then, and then come the ten uh, plagues, and then the, the crossing of the Red Sea, and then the, the fireworks at Mount Sinai. It's just been an amazing time of God working in their life, and yet... Uh, now we're about a month and a half out of Egypt, and, and it's like ancient history because they got bigger problems. They got two to three million people now. They're in the middle of the wilderness, no Costco's, no Sam Clubs in sight. Like, how do you feed that many people? They've just left a little oasis. They're out in the, the desert now. They're trying to figure out how this works. They're running out of food. They're starting to panic. And so they go to Moses, and there's a rebellion forming, and and so he takes the problem to God, and God says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. And next morning they get up, and as far as I can see, the ground is white, almost like he had a light snow or a frost. The ground is covered with this kind of a thin white flake, sort of like an instant potato or that sort of thing. And so the people go out, and they're not sure what to think or what to do. It's like, what is it? I don't know, what do you think, what is it? In Hebrew, when you say, what is it, it's, you say, manu, manu, what is it? Manu, manu. Manu, and the name stuck, manna. And from that point on, they began to go out every morning uh, and, and gather this, these, uh, these flakes. Uh, every morning except Saturday, because Saturday's when cartoons are on. Uh, actually, Saturday's the Sabbath, yeah. Right? And so every day, and they go out and they get a, they, they gather a half gallon per person. They bring it in and they boil it up, make some like oatmeal type of food. Or they'd, uh, they'd bake it into bread. It had sort of a sweet taste, a little bit of a flavor of olive oil with it. And, and so they began to call this the bread of heaven. That's what they called it. Well, today we're continuing this series that we've been in now for the last uh, few months. And for those of you brand new, a special welcome. It's called Revealed. You can see on our walls. It's a study of the life of Jesus as seen through the eyes of one of his closest followers and friends, uh, a man by the name of John. John actually wrote a story uh, of the life of Jesus. We call it the Gospel of John. And we're, uh, we're actually in the second mini-series in Revealed. It's called Conflict in Crisis. It starts at chapter 5 and goes through chapter 12. 
And today we come to one of the most famous speeches in the history of the world. And I, but before we jump into to John 6 and look at it, I need to set it up. So if you've been here the last few weeks, you kind of, kind of remember this scene. John 6 starts, it's, it's Passover time. And Passover is like the 4th of July for Israel. It's the time when they, they remember when God sent Moses to, is to uh, Egypt, delivered them from slavery, led them out through the Red Sea into the wilderness, gave them the manna, provided for them supernaturally. And, and so uh, it's Passover time, and they've been following Jesus for days and weeks now, and they're just, his, his popularity is at an all-time high. And he is, uh, he's, he's, he's on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. He's, he's teaching, he's healing all day. At the end of the day, he performs one of his great miracles, the, the fourth sign in the Gospel of John, the, the, the turning of, uh, kind of taking the, the one kid's happy meal, turning into feeding, what, five, 10, 15,000 people. And when he does this, this is like a tipping point in the ministry of Jesus. Like I'm saying, his ministry is at all-time high in terms of popular uh, approval ratings. And when they see this miracle, it's like a tipping point. They've been watching him heal, listening to him teach, and now when they see this at Passover time, it suddenly triggers in their mind there was another time and another place when God sent a major deliverer and, and delivered the nation during Passover and supernaturally provided bread in the wilderness. And it triggers this in their mind, and they decide, I think this is the guy. Moses had said that one day that God would send a super prophet like himself and that when he came, they needed to follow him. So they put two and two together. We think this is the guy. They, they plan to seize Jesus and, and make him king. And their thought is, hey, if God could, could uh, take us out of bondage to Egypt through, uh, through Moses, uh, he can take us out of bondage to Rome with Jesus. And, of course, this would have been disastrous. Uh, would have been kind of derailed everything Jesus came to do and say. would have been a huge problem. And so Jesus quickly takes his men, his 12 men. He puts them in the boat, the only boat that was there. That's how they'd sail there in this boat. It's the only boat that was there. He, he sends them off. He goes to the crowd, dismisses them. He goes up in the hills to the Golan Heights to pray. He's there till the middle of the night. Somewhere between 3 and 6 in the morning, he, he walks to his disciples on the water. We talked about that last week. After he gets there, calms the storm, but gets in the boat, he, he, trans, he, uh, he kind of uh, uh, transmits the boat, you know, kind of like Star Trek style, to uh, just, uh, it's kind of gone through, goes through space all the way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, to the western side. And so we're at the next day. This, our story today is picking up the next day. It's the day after that miracle of kind of walking on water, feeding the, the 5,000. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go to chapter 6 and verse uh, 22. <laughs> John 6, verse 22. Now, uh, so it says the next day, so the day after he feeds the 5,000, uh, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite uh, shore of the lake. Remember, remember the scene? Jesus had fed the 5,000 on the eastern side of the shore, walked on water. He's now at the western side, but they're still on the eastern side. They're, they, they're still kind of looking for him there. And so they come back that day looking for him, and uh, they realized that only one boat had been there the day before, and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples. Remember, he had sent them off. He'd gone to the hills, but they'd gone away alone. Well, then that day, that next, that next morning, some boats arise from Tiberias. Tiberias is another city. It's a famous Roman big city on the western side of the uh, opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. And so these new boats arrive. They're looking for Jesus too. And so they landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. 
Now, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they, uh, they get into the boats and they, they go to Capernaum, to kind of the other side of the sea, the western side, because Capernaum is Jesus' home base of operations. So they're just saying, well, he's not here. Uh, let's check Capernaum. Maybe, maybe he just went back there. And so they're in search of Jesus. Now, when they find him, verse 25, when they find him on the other side of the lake, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now, what they really want to know is not so much when did you get here, but how did you get here, right? Because, because there was just one boat there the day before. He sent his disciples off. He went to the hills. Now he's on the far side of the sea. Like, how did you, of course, they don't know about the shortcut he took across the water. And so, like, how did you get, when did you get here? When they don't really care. It's 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock. They just really want him, like, how did you get here? Now, Jesus is not going to answer their question at this point. Uh, you see this throughout the Gospel of John. Oftentimes, people ask Jesus questions. He just ignores their question. And he goes to the, he cuts to the chase. He goes to the important, important point. And what he knows about these people is that they're seeking him, but they're seeking him for all the wrong reasons. So the day before, he had done this amazing miracle feeding the, the 5,000. And, and what should have happened is light should have gone on, that, that, and he is like the Messiah. This guy's the Messiah. We, we've seen him heal. We've seen him teach. He's the Messiah. And so they should be following him because he's the Messiah. They want to know God. They want to find out God's plan for their life. They want to be changed. They, they, want, to, they want to pursue God. That's what they should be doing. But, but what they're actually doing is they just want some more free food. They're pursuing him. It's kind of like going to Costco at dinner time for the samples. You know what I'm talking about? We call it date night in my family. Uh, <laughs> So, so are you with it? They're seeking Jesus, but they're not really seeking him because of who he is or they want to know God. They're really seeking him just because they want the free food. And so he knows this, and so he calls them on it. He kind of ignores their question, and he calls them on this. So in verse uh, 26, he says, look, I tell you the truth, uh, honestly, he says, you're, uh, you're looking for me, <laughs> but not because you saw miraculous signs, not because you saw these miracles, you're convinced of who I am, and I want to follow you, that sort of thing but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. You just had this free food. So he says, hey, don't be working. You shouldn't be working in your life for food that spoils, just natural you know, human food, uh, physical food, but for the food that endures to eternal life. You need to be seeking kind of spiritual food. Uh, and he says, uh, that the, which the Son of Man, which is himself, will give you. On him, the God, the Father, has placed the seal of approval. So he says, hey, you need to be seeking God for, because of what, of this whole new life I have. You need to be seeking God for this, this change that can happen and just this life that's going to lead you to eternal life. You need to be seeking me for that, not just for the, for the free handout. And so, remember, he said to them, you need to be working for the food. And so that trigger, that word sticks in their mind. And so they said, okay, well, next they said, uh, verse 29, um, they said, well, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Like, we want this free food, so what do we need to do to work for it? And Jesus said, no, here's the work, <laughs> verse 29. The work of God is this, to believe in the one that he sent. And so this is the message all through John, right? That, that Jesus has come to reveal who God is, to bring us in this whole new life with him, and that what God's after is for us to buy into Jesus, to believe in Jesus, to follow him, to give, us our, uh, give him our life, and that he'll, he will lead us to this new life. And so he says, that's what God's looking for. And so they say in verse 30, well, well, what miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe in you? Um, what will you do? Our forefathers, you know, back in the wilderness, they ate the manna in the desert. This is the story we started the day with. 
as it's written, a quote from the Old Testament, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So there's like, okay, wait a second. You want us to follow you? You want us to believe in you? Well, what sign can you do? Like when God sent Moses, he did these signs, like he gave them bread from heaven. He gave them the manna. So what can you do and show me your credentials? Now, of course, the irony is he just fed them the day before with the one kid's happy meal. Like what more do you want? It's interesting, though, because we know from Jewish history that there was a teaching about this time a little bit later, but it's very likely it was possible going around this time, that when Messiah came, that he would reinstitute manna again. Uh, that may be what they're looking for. Uh, hey, start the manna. If you're really the guy, start the manna. It may be they just want an encore performance. We got in some more free food, you know. But whatever, they're like, what, what can you do? Like, give us a sign. And so Jesus says in verse 32, he picks up on this bread of heaven theme. And he says, listen, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so Jesus picks up on this Old Testament story. He says, listen, he says, uh, this bread of heaven uh, in the Old Testament, it's almost like a prophetic picture of what one day would happen. Uh, uh, it, that wasn't the truth. You, know, you ate that bread and you died. But my father is the one who's going to give you the true bread of heaven, the one who comes down from heaven and give life to the world. And so he uses this Old Testament picture to talk about his ministry. It's kind of like earlier in John 3. I don't know if you remember this, but remember when he's talking to Nicodemus and he said, uh, you know, you need to be born again. And, and Nic he said to Nicodemus, remember how Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness that was kind of a picture of me being raised up. And if you look to me and, and believe in me, I'll be saved. So here he takes this Old Testament story, the bread of heaven, and he says, let me kind of tell you what that's really about. It's really a picture of my coming. And so anyway, in verse uh, 34, uh, they say, sir, <coughs> from now on, give us this bread. Um, they're still thinking literal bread. This reminds me of earlier in John uh, 4 where he's talking to the woman at the well. Remember that story? He says, I, I'm going to give you a living water that will quench your thirst. You'll never get thirsty. And remember her response, give me this water so I won't have to come here and, and fill up my bucket every day. So in the same way, they're taking them in a li very literal way. And so they're saying like, hey, could you give us this bread, this wonder bread, this magic bread that we eat it and live forever? It's kind of this magic bread. And, uh, and so Jesus, now he, he lays out for them. He says, listen, I am the bread of life. He's going to clarify. He says, I'm not talking about physical bread. I am the bread. Now, it's interesting. And the Gospel of John, as we've, if you've been here through this series, you, you know this, that the opening chapter, John is laying out this claim that there was a time and place when the God who created time and space entered into creation, became a part of the human race, and revealed himself that we might have life. And, and so this is his thesis. Now, throughout John, he's, he's giving us these, he's introducing in this court case these signs, these miracles to prove his point. We've seen four of them so far. The, the feeding of the 5,000 was the fourth sign. There's seven of them, seven signs in the gospel. Interesting, in the same way that there's seven signs, there are also seven I am statements. Now, this is the first one, I am the bread of life. There's seven of these statements in the Gospel of John. In the Old Testament, one of the names for God is 
I am. When, when God showed up to Moses at the burning bush, he said, God, uh, Moses said, what's your name? And he said, I am who I am. Well, he says, this is what you tell them when you go. Tell them the I am has sent you. And so in John, the God who becomes flesh is going to make seven I am statements. And this is number one. I am the bread of life. Later on, he'll say, I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. Seven times, he will lay out I am statements. The God of the universe has come to be the source of all human satisfaction. Here's the first one. I am the bread of life. And look what he claims now. He says, he who comes to me, you, you come to me, you believe in me, you draw close to me, you follow me. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. So he claims to be the only one who can satisfy the deepest hunger and thirst in the human heart. That's his claim. Now, the tragedy is they're not buying in. So in verse 36, he says, but as I told you, you have seen me. I mean, you've been watching me. You've seen my miracles. You listened to me teach. You saw me feed the 5,000 yesterday, but you don't believe in me. <laughs> so he says, uh, you've seen me and you still don't believe. And what we'll see next week uh, Next week, as we finish this passage, uh, that these many of these people who John calls disciples, they were followers up to this point, they will actually leave Jesus at this point at the end of this day. At the end of this message, they're going to leave him. And so they, they don't really believe. Now, we're going to stop the, the passage, the speech uh, right there, because there's a couple things I want us to focus on today. I want to focus on this great I am statement of Jesus. I am the bread of life. And a couple critical questions that it raises for us as Christ followers. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? So there in your note sheet, you have a section called the bread of life, two critical questions. Let's jump in. If you're a follower of Jesus today, he's going to force us to ask a couple critical questions in our life about what it means to follow him. And so here's number one. The first question goes like this, <laughs> why are you following Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? Like, like what are you looking for from him? Like, why are you here today? Um, what are you looking for from me? What are you looking for for this relationship? Why are you following Jesus? What, what strikes me in this story, what jumps out to me in this story, is it's possible to follow Jesus, but to follow him for the wrong reasons. And that's what was happening with these people in this story. They were following Je they were serious about following Jesus, weren't they? They've been following him all over the countryside. They've taken time off work. Uh, they've gotten in the boats. They've gone from one side of the lake. They've gone to the other side. They've, they've raced around the top of the lake. Uh, the next day, they can't find him. They're going to Capernaum. They're looking for him everywhere. I and mean, they're serious about following Jesus, aren't they? It'd be like someone coming from Barstow to Rocky Peak. I mean, it's like, they're serious. You know, they're, they're, they're following Jesus, but what Jesus is going to say is, you're following me for all the wrong reasons. And look what he says in verse 26. <clears throat> Jesus answered, 
I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw the miraculous signs, not because you saw the miracles and you realize who I am and you want a relationship with me and you want to follow me and you want to know me and you want to love me and you want to be changed to be like me. That's not why you're following me, because you want a relationship with God. He said, you're following me because you, you ate of the loaves and you had your fill. You're looking for the stuff. You know, this is what you want. And, and so they're following Jesus for all the wrong reasons. Now, this can happen in our life, can it? We start to follow Jesus because he's sort of like our magical spiritual genie who solves our problems. And so as we come to Jesus, and we just like, he becomes like our supernatural problem solver in our life. And so have you ever noticed how like in your prayer life will go up when you have a problem, right? And so we start, we start coming to Jesus and we, we want him to, we want him to yeah, heal our diseases, we want him to fix our kids, we want us to get him a job, we want us to, that this becomes like often why we, we follow him. That it's like, uh, are we following him for the right reasons? It's interesting. Um, a year or two ago, I came across an interview. It was a really interesting interview. It was with Rick Warren. Uh, Rick is uh, he's the author of The Purpose Driven Life. You may have heard that book. Um, and, and then he's uh, also pastor at a large church down in Orange County called Saddleback. And uh, about a year or two ago, I can't remember the chronology exactly, but his wife uh, got very sick with cancer. And so during that time, his book sales are going crazy. He's become very famous, but, but his wife is very sick with cancer. And so he's, in, he's doing this interview, and, and I want to share with you just part of the interview. It's very profound what he says. He says, uh, uh, people ask me, what is the purpose of life? Of course, uh, he wrote The Purpose Driven Life, so that's why they ask him. And, uh, and I respond, well, in a nutshell, <laughs> life is a preparation for eternity. Now catch that. Important statement, life is a preparation for eternity. We were made to last forever, and God wants us to be with him in heaven. One day my heart is going to stop, and that will be the end of my body, but it's not the end of me. I may live 60 to 100 years on earth, but I'm going to spend trillions of years in eternity. This is the warm-up act. This is the dress rehearsal. God wants us to practice on earth what we will do forever in eternity. Now catch this next line. We were made by God and for God, and until you figure that out, life isn't going to make sense. And so this is what Jesus is saying to them. Hey, don't work for the food which perishes. Work for the food which endures. Life is more than the physical. Life is more than superficial. There's something bigger going on here. Seek after me. Follow me. But for the right reasons. For this whole new relationship with God being changed from the inside out. The new life that starts now and goes on forever. And so Rick goes on and says, life is a series of problems. Either you're in one now, you're just coming out of one, or you're getting ready to go into another one. Isn't that encouraging? Like, aren't you glad you came to church today? You're like, fired up. Man, this is inspirational. Uh, and the reason for this, catch this, the reason for this is that God is more interested in your character than in your comfort. Wow. God's more interested in making your life holy then he is making your life happy. We can be reasonably happy here on earth, but that's not the goal of life. The goal is to grow in our character, in our Christ-likeness. Now, this past year has been the greatest year of my life, but also the toughest with my wife Kay getting cancer. I used to think that life was hills and valleys. You go through a dark time. You go through a mountaintop back and forth, but I don't believe that anymore. Rather than life being hills and valleys, I believe it's kind of like, two rails on a railroad track. And at all times, you have something good and something bad in your life. 
Isn't that true? Is that, I mean, very few times in your life, like everything is perfect. Like often there's, there's a lot going on, but man, life would be perfect if only this, right? There's just always something. And he said, we discovered quickly that in spite of the prayers of hundreds of thousands of people, so people all over the world are praying for his wife because they're so famous, God's not going to heal Kay uh, or, or make it easy for her. It's been very difficult for her. Catch that. Very difficult. And yet God has strengthened her character, given her the ministry of helping other people, given her a testimony, drawn her closer to him and to people. So, so the question is, like, why are we following Jesus? Why are you following Jesus? What do you want from this relationship? What are you expecting from this relationship? The people that day, they were seriously following Jesus, but they're following for all the wrong reasons. And, and I think it's a constant temptation for us, as, even as Christ's followers. You know, let me, let me tell you one place where it shows up, and, and just let me say this, is that uh, this is not a, a, kind of a kind of a guilt session here or whatever. I think you know my heart, that, that we're just kind of family here. We want to explore this together. But I think one place this shows up often is in our prayer life. Um, like, for example, if you were to listen into our prayers, maybe like in a life group, or you were to listen into our prayers uh, uh, personally, kind of one-on-one, or at the dinner table, or, or if you look at the, the prayer requests we get in here every week, at our prayer, what you'd find out is that most of the time, our prayers are on the physical level, aren't they? Most of the time, what we're asking God for is bread, the equivalent of bread. We're asking him for things. If you just listen to our prayers, we're asking him to, to kind of fix our job or get, help us with the house or help us get that or heal this disease. We're, we're dealing on a physical level, aren't we? Now, let me be clear on this. There's nothing wrong with praying for those things. Jesus himself taught us to pray for our daily bread, didn't he? And so anything that's of concern to you, we should be praying. My rules, if I'm worried about it, I need to be praying about it. So anything that's on you, that's what the Bible teaches. We're supposed to bring all our, so don't misunderstand me here. But it's interesting because if you listen to our prayers in our life groups, one-on-one, our prayer requests, uh, what you'll see is that time and time again, our primary prayer is at the physical level. And it's like, like why aren't we praying for other things? Like, like, why aren't, like, in a life group, why aren't we asking this? Okay, does anyone have any prayer requests? Yes. I got one. What's, what is it? Like, well, I'm just really concerned. I, I just don't have a passion for God in my life. Like, I'm going to church. I'm doing all the right stuff. But I used to be really passionate about Christ. I felt like I was drawn so close. But, but it's just kind of the, the joy is kind of out of that. I'm just kind of going through the motions. And I really want to be passionate. Could you pray for me about that? Right? Uh, how many times are a life group of someone say, I've got a prayer request. Well, what is it? Uh, I just don't feel like I love people like I'm supposed to. I mean, this week I was reading in 1 John chapter 4, and it talks about God's love, and this is how we know we've been born again. We love, and I just feel in my own life, I just don't have that much compassion for people. I'm, I'm self-absorbed, and I don't really care that much, and I really want to learn how to love people radically like Jesus. Like, when was the last time in your life group someone said, hey, could you pray for me? I just have an anger problem with my wife, and, and we're reading this stuff about how I'm supposed to love her like Christ loved the church, but man, I just don't, I've got an anger issue in my life. I need to be changed. I need God to change. Would you pray for me? This is driving me crazy. You see what I'm saying? How many times have we, have we got to pray for this person I'm, I'm sharing Christ with at work? I think they're getting close, and we just need them to get them here to Rocky Peak, and, and so you can just hear and, and be a part and just you see? There's so many times we live life on the physical level, right? And what we're looking for from Jesus just is, a, is kind of a heavenly fix-it man. Fix my marriage, fix my health, fix my job, fix my money, fix my kids, fix my, you see what I'm saying? 
And there's nothing wrong with asking for those things, but Jesus is coming and he's saying, hey, don't work for the food which perishes, work for the food which endures for eternal life. I've got so much more for you. I wanna change your life. I wanna radically change your life. I wanna satisfy you at the deepest level of your being. I want you to know me and pursue me and, and make me your number one love and I wanna change you and use you in my kingdom, you see? And we're like, yeah, that's okay. I've got a sandwich. Right? And that's what these people were doing. They're like, yeah, that's, that's, right. that's great, that's great. Could you just do that, uh, could you do the bread trick again? Because that was really cool yesterday. And it was just awesome. Could you just do the bread, trick, bread thing, right? And so Jesus comes and, and he asks us the question, you know, why are you following me? Like, what are you looking for? And here's a tragic thing. <laughs> here's a tragic, if you follow Jesus for the wrong reasons, chances are there will come a time when you will stop following him because he stops performing his tricks for you. Uh, and you've probably known people like this. You may be like this in your own life, but I know many people, I, I don't believe in God, because when I was going through this and I prayed for my daughter and she didn't get well, or I, I was out of work and I did this, and, and so we're looking for him to do the bread trick, and when he doesn't, then we leave him. And that's exactly what happens in John chapter six. By the end of this conversation, next week we'll see this, by the end of the conversation, because Jesus didn't jump through their hoops, they said, we're out of here. And it says, many who were disciples, John uses the word, many who were his disciples stopped following him at that point. Why? Because, because he wasn't doing the tricks. He wasn't fixing their problems. So, so why are we following him? To fix our problems or because we want to know God, love God, pursue God, experience this new life he has? And here's the even bigger tragedy is that when we pursue Jesus for the wrong, the wrong reasons, we, we never end up receiving the life that he came to give us. And that's what he's saying. Don't work for the food which perishes. Work for the food which endures because this will satisfy you at the deepest level of your life. So when we pursue him for the wrong reasons, not only do you leave him, we miss out on the whole reason he came, not only life for this life, but life for the next life. Now, number two, the second question, and I'm actually gonna give it this to you in two forms. We're gonna fill in the blanks, and then I'm gonna ask it a second way. I'd like you to write it down the second way too, because I'll be using it both ways. It's just kind of the same question, two different ways. But here's the question, what do you believe about happiness? What do you believe about happiness? And the second way of asking that is what's your theory of happiness? So I'd encourage you to write that down too. What's your theory of happiness? Like in your heart of hearts, what do you believe about life? What do you believe is the path to fulfillment? What do you believe is the path to satisfaction? What do you believe is, is the road to, to ultimate joy or, or the good life? Like what do you believe? In your heart of hearts, what's your theory of happiness? Now, let's start with what something Jesus said in 635. <clears throat> in John 6:35, Jesus makes this incredible claim. He says, "I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will never go on. He, he who comes to me, believes me, trusts me, that when you connect with me in the way you're supposed to connect, he says, "You'll never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty." And so Jesus makes this claim that he alone has the capacity to satisfy the deepest hunger and thirst of the human heart. And that when we're rightly connected with him, walking with him, he alone has this capacity to, to lead us to fulfillment, lead us to purpose, lead us to happiness, whatever you want to call it. 
Now, so the question is, what's your theory? That's his claim. What's your theory? Um, so let's say that we were going out to Starbucks together, just the two of us, and for whatever reason, you felt perfectly free that day just to share your heart with me. You, you felt safe not only with me, but in, in some ways, more importantly, you, you felt safe to be with yourself. That you just felt like there was no need for image, there's no need for, for smokescreen, you're just gonna get right to it, and I would say, what is your theory of happiness? What is your game plan to be happy in life? We've all got one, what's your game plan? What do you believe about life? And, and so if I were to ask you, what would you say? You know, no, kind of no cliches, no religious cliches, just bottom line, what do you believe in your heart of hearts as a path to happiness? Now, while you're thinking about that, I want to throw out some common theories, popular theories of our day, all right? And you, you'll probably see yourself in some of these. But uh, let me throw out some theories. Um, Earlier this summer, or uh, in the summer, I, uh, I was on vacation. I read John Grisham's latest novel, The Associate. Anyone ever? John Grisham fans? Anyone? Okay, a few of you. All right. Um, well, I love his books. I, I don't like his, uh, I love his legal thrillers. Don't, don't like his other, like The Painted House, The Christmas Story. It's like stick to what you know, John. Anyway, uh, but, but anyway, so it comes out. I'm looking forward to reading this story. And I'm not going to blow the punchline. I'm not going to tell you what the story is, the whole story, because I, I know some of you are going to want to read it. I had a lady come up last service. Thanks so much, because I'm right in the middle of the book. Um, but uh, anyway, it's a story of this, uh, this young uh, associate. He's the, top, he's the top, uh, top legal student at Yale University, one of the top uh, law schools in the nation. And he, and he graduates, and he, and he goes to takes, he takes a job as, a, as a new associate at the top legal firm in New York City, the largest one in the world. And so it's kind of the story of, of what it's like to be an intern, and you learn what it's like to be an intern in this top legal firm in the world. And, and it's brutal. Uh, what you learn as a young, as, as a young associate, you, you're going to work uh, probably 100 hours a week, every week. Uh, you're going to carry a BlackBerry with you, and you're going to be on call 24/7. You're going to work on on mind-numbing work, just the boringest, uh, kind of lowest kind of work, and, and you're going to be taken advantage of by all the older associates and and partners in the firm. And so it's just it's brutal. And so it's a story of how that particular year they had 102 new young attorneys, the brightest and best from the top legal schools in the nation, that they come to this firm, and it's kind of the story of what their life is like there. And so you kind of walk them through. And it, it raises the question for you of why would the brightest and best legal minds of our nation, I mean, these are the top, top, the brightest kids and most going for them, like why would they work 100 hours a week under brutal conditions for years in the hope that uh, only 10% of them will eventually become a partner? 10% of the 102 will, will, will succeed and will survive and they'll become a partner. The other 90% are going to wash out over the next few years. So why would a person do that? Well, I'll tell you. The reason is because it fits their theory of happiness. See, we all do what we do because of our theory of happiness. And their theory of happiness, uh, for these people, these are all high achievers, aren't they? And so in their world, high achievement is the path to happiness. And, and for, for a lot of us here, that's, that's kind of one of our paths. Uh, the, the high achievement. And so if you can get the right job, if you can get the right position, you get the right title, you win the right championship, whatever, that, that if you can achieve, it's the path. That, see, what, they, what they believe is if I can become a partner with all that goes with that, I will be happy. That's why I'm willing to do this, right? That's their theory. A lot of people, that's, 
That's a theory, a theory of happy achievement. Many years ago, I read a second book. Uh, it's a book called A Severe Mercy. So the author's name is Sheldon Vanakin. It's actually an autobiographical story. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a love story. It's a story of this young couple that uh, they meet, they fall in love, they end up as part of their adventures going to Oxford University and they meet C.S. Lewis and they actually become Christ followers. But before that, they're, they're, a, they're this young pagan couple. They describe themselves as high pagans. They're in love with life, they're in love with nature, they're in love with beauty and poetry. They love sailing on the sea, flying planes in the sky, living the life of adventure. But more than anything else, they believe in love. They believe that the secret to happiness is to find a great love, your soulmate, and to pour yourself in the relationship and let nothing get in the way. And that's their theory. Now, this is the second theory of happiness. It's very popular in our culture, is it? You listen to look at our movies, you look at our novels, you look at let, uh, our, our popular music, constant theme. Find the right person. This is the, the path to happiness. Before that, I read another book, a third book. This book was called The City of Joy. It's a story of a Polish priest. It's a true story of a Polish priest who left uh, Poland and moved to Calcutta, India to work with the poorest of the poor in a part of the city called Anand Nagar, which means City of Joy. And so he went there, he learned the language, he took on their garb, he ate their food. He became one of the poorest of the poor so that he could serve them and make life better for them. And for many people in our culture, this is another theory of happiness, that, that the path to happiness is the path of service. It's a path of, of finding a great and a noble cause that you give your life to. It might be saving the environment. It could be a life of political service. It could be a social justice. It could be working at an AIDS clinic. It could be working downtown with uh, uh, the poor in an inner city ministry or some kind of industry. But the theory is that if I just, you find a great cause, something bigger than yourself, and you give yourself to it, that is the path of happiness, sort of the Albert Schweitzer type of model, okay? For other people, I, I read another book. And, and this book is called The Book of Ecclesiastes. It's in the Bible. It's written by a man named Solomon, who is king. And uh, for many people, their theory of happiness is that it's either um, possessions, accumulating, or pleasure. That these, and they're very, two very common. Like, we started the day with this funny little video of these two guys kind of keep up with the Jones type video. And, and so for a lot of people, that's it. The one with the most toys wins. Right? And, so, and so for a lot of people in our culture, it's, hey, you get the dirt bikes and you get the, you get the speedboat and then you can go wakeboarding and then, and then you get the bigger house and you put the pool in and they get the landscaping. You know, get the entertainment center, big screen TV, get the, get the gym going in your garage. Just, just get the whole thing and it's just life is a constant pursuit of the next possession. And for many people, this is the path to success, happiness. For others, it's, uh, it's the road of pleasure. You know, it's, it's living that, the, the life of pleasure. It's, it's the fine wine or it's, the, it's, it's the, a different woman a night. It's the, the uh, maybe it's a, a, you go the drug route. It's, it's uh, being high. It's, well, you know what, but there's some sort of pleasure. Like life is about pleasure. King Solomon was one of those guys that pursued deeply the path of pleasure and the path of possessions in his life. He, 
he wanted to figure out what, what's the secret to happiness in life. And so these are two of the paths that he studied. In fact, you'll study more about him in your life group this week and his paths. But look what he says there on your note sheet. There is, uh, from Ecclesiastes 2, he, he shares his story, kind of autobiographical of his search for happiness. He says, I thought in my heart, come now, <laughs> I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. You know, what's the good way, good path to life? So I tried cheering myself with wine. I undertook great projects. He became a land developer. Uh, I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks, and I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to, to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had other slaves who were born in my house. I, I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself. So I kind of the Bill Gates of his day, uh, the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. He had his own rock bands. And, uh, and I had a harem as well, kind of the Playboy Mansion. And uh, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem. So I only had the the pleasure, not only the possessions, he had the position. Uh, I, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. So he's just running hard after possessions and pleasure. So how'd that work for him? <laughs> well, you jump to the end of that passage. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so he says, man, I'm, I'm going to do this pleasure thing. I'm going to do the possession thing. Ends up, doesn't satisfy the deepest hunger of the human heart. And, and so many people are out there, but this is the path that we're on. This, this is the path we're on. For other people, it's exactly the opposite. Instead of the uh, kind of the, the, the pos high possessions, it's the simple life, right? For a lot of people in our culture today, it's moving to Oregon, The secret of life is in Oregon. Uh, you, you're not going to move to Oregon. I'm going to buy a pair of Crocs. I'm going to recycle. I'm going to live on a farm. I'm going to eat organic food. I'm going to drink two buck chuck with my friends. I'm going to listen to fine wine. I mean, I'm, I'm not, listen to great music. I'm going to pour myself into relationships. I'm going to ride a bicycle. And, and this is the secret to life. The secret to life is anti-materialism. Embrace the simple life, and that'll make me happy. For others, it's the suburban life. It's, uh, hey, I'm, I'm gonna, I want to get married. I want to meet someone nice. Uh, we're going to have kids. I, I want to get a good job, but I only want to work 40 hours a week. Uh, I want good benefits. I want to live in a safe neighborhood. Uh, I want to have free times, four weekends of vacation a year. I want a big screen TV. Uh, I want to uh, just kind of kick back. I want to have time in my life to coach my kids' uh, soccer, soccer team. If I'm a mom, I want to I stay at home, be a stay-at-home mom, and just take care of the kids and kind of drive them around. Uh, we want to have time in our weekends so we can go ride motorcycles in the desert. We can go down to the beach and use our boat. This is the good life, right? So, so I've kind of laid out for you some of the more popular theories of our day. Theories, these are all theories of happiness. If you pursue this road, you will be happy, right? Now we, and, and so with different theories. Now, here's what I know. Now obviously, there's more than these, but I ran out of books. Um, okay, so 
here's what I know. Number one is that every one of us has a theory. At the beginning, I asked you, what's your theory? I don't know if you have identified it yet. Sometimes you have to dig a little bit to figure it out, but every one of us has a theory. The second thing I know is that our theory of happiness will control our choices in life. That whatever you believe in your deepest heart of heart about the path to have, it will control your choices, your priorities, your values, your relationships, control your moods. What you believe, what your theory of happiness will control what you do. Now, these people that came to Jesus that day, they had a theory of happiness. Their theory was, if we can make Jesus king, if we can kick out the Romans and get our own country back, and if we can get the manna flowing again, life will be good. See? We just need a change of leadership, you know? We need a new president. We need a bailout. Life will be good, right? We just need something new. That was their theory. And Jesus comes, he says, man, do not settle for that theory. He says, life is so much more than the physical. Life is so much more than the bread. Like, I've got a plan for your life. Work for that plan. Pursue me, follow me, love me. Let me change you from the inside out. Let me show you the path to life. Follow me and I will lead you there, not only in this life, but in the next life. And so he calls to them. So here's a question. The question for us as Christ followers is, do we believe Jesus or not? He's claiming that he alone can satisfy the deepest desires of the human heart. The question is, do you believe him? I think at one level, often we do. I think at one level, if you're a Christ follower, you can remember back in your life when you came to Christ. You remember the change he made. You remember how he touched you at at the core of your being in a way nothing else had touched you. You remember the peace. You remember the forgiveness. You remember the joy. You remember the new sense of purpose. There was something that happens when Jesus comes into our life that changes us at a core level that we'll never forget. And so we've experienced, we've tasted what he means, I'm the bread of life. And there's something about that that when we read this story, when he says, I am the bread of life, I alone can satisfy. There's something that resonates and we say, yes, I've tasted of that. But here's what I find in my life, you've probably experienced it, that often I don't want just the bread of life, I want a little jam on the side. It's kind of like Jesus plus, Right? And so we go through life with this kind of our theory of life is, yes, we need the bread of life, but we also need X, Y, Z. And for different people, it will be different things. For some, it's like, I need Jesus, and I need the romance piece. Oh, I need Jesus, I need the pleasure piece. I need Jesus, I need the possessions piece. I need Jesus, I need the simple life piece. I need Jesus, and we go on and on. And we say, yes, yes, at one level we believe him, but at another level we don't believe him. And the way you can tell is because there's times in our life where Jesus comes and says, I want you to go right. And we'd say, but that would mean giving up my theory of happiness. That would mean giving up this peace. And and so we balk and we disobey because in our heart of hearts, he's messing with our theory of happiness. 
And our theory of happiness is, no, I have to have those possessions to be happy. And so Jesus comes to someone and says, I want you to downsize your house, and I want you to live more simply so you have more to give to the poor. And we say, but I can't do that because my theory of happiness says that I have to have this stuff to be happy. And Jesus says, no, trust me in this. Give me your life. Follow me. I will lead you to more life than you can imagine. I will satisfy. Trust me in this. He comes to someone else. It's a young girl who's dating a non-believer, and she's in love with him, and he says, trust me in this. Let him go. And he's like, no, I can't because my theory of happiness is I need romance. I found romance. I can't be happy without this guy. You see? And so we go through our life, and I can't go through an illustration for every one of you because this is way too many, but you think it through. What is your theory of happiness? Do you believe in Jesus or do you not believe in him? And here's what I know is I think we find out those times in our life where Jesus comes to say, follow me, and it requires giving up part of our theory of happiness. Those are the days we find out whether we believe him or not. And what we decide on those days determines whether we go hungry or whether we get satisfied. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we, we want to be following your son for the right reasons, or we don't want to be like these people that, that searched and followed him all over, and yet they were following him for the wrong reasons. They didn't really want to know him, love him, become like him, experience this new life that he had from the inside out. They just really wanted him to be their fix-it man. And so, Lord, we come, we, we just kind of confess that we don't want to do that. And, Lord, we confess that many times in our life that we run after other things that we think that we have to have or that this is our secret. And that when we do that, Lord, we miss out on the bread of life that alone can satisfy. And so we just want to bring that before you and confess that. We want to ask your forgiveness, and we want today in a fresh way to trust in you in a new way. And so, Lord, we pray that you would teach us that you are the bread of life, that you alone can satisfy. We pray you'd help us to grow in that. And in those days, in those times where we're tempted to think that other things can satisfy more than you, we pray that you'd remind us of this day and of this lesson, and that we would look to you to satisfy the deepest hunger and thirst of our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.